How and why do people disappear? If you brought somebody in to help you disappear, have you actually disappeared? We will deal with missing persons on a daily basis, so we're the national experts. Every year, over 300,000 reports of a missing person are made to the police. Even if you're not doing anything wrong, you're being watched. You'll go missing, and we'll allow it that you're never found. People set up We are perfectly capable of holding on to important secrets. Anything that you're doing, you're basically mm -hmm. leaving a trace. Your duly elected representatives have been consistently informed. Could somebody go missing without a trace? I'm not sure. You're not looking for them. You're looking for the information they left behind. I'm Tim Weaver, author of the David Raker series. Over the course of Missing, I'll be investigating how people can vanish in the 21st century and how we find them again. Join me as I speak with experts in forensics, human behaviour, surveillance and investigation, and we look into the art of disappearance. Last week I visited the Museum of London where I was given the chance to look through the collection of the Crime Museum of Scotland Yard. I got to see firsthand how history has dealt with the missing, with people who have assumed new identities or seemingly disappeared into thin air. In some of those cases, answers were eventually found. In others, the search went on. In my books, this is where my character David Raker normally steps in. He takes up cold cases, he specialises in lost causes, he keeps going until he finds the answers. But what happens in real life? What happens to these cases over time? If you disappear, who keeps the search alive and how do they do it? This week, we're going to find out. How long can a case rumble on and what happens like two years down the line when that person hasn't been found? Are police still looking for them or has it sort of disappeared into a cupboard somewhere and, and sort of been forgotten about? Um, we call those cases cold cases. It's when the police have run out of all of their options and there's no new information coming in. Dr Karen Shalev-Green is the director of the Centre for the Study of Missing Persons at the University of Portsmouth. And again, those are really rare cases. If you think about 99 cases are found within a week. And some cases, after several years, there will be a review. Some cases, if there's any glimpse of new information, it will be quicker than that. And some police officers just have that absolute passion to resolve that case. They get very, very, very protective of families. And they just want to know, just like the families do. So they do have that internal motivation to resolve the cases as well. Have you come across police officers that have had that kind of real sense of despondency, but that real sense of attachment to a case before? I have to say, all of the police officers I've met so far, and it's quite a few now, are very, very passionate about missing persons. Most of them will have a case that will always be with them that's gone wrong, and it just drives them to do things better. What's the impact in your experience of those left behind and, 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 and how does it sort of play out? It's awful. I mean, we call it ambiguous loss. Pauline Boss researched that over quite a long number of years. It's really about, you know, if you lose someone, if you lose someone you love, you can grieve them. If they die, you know where they laid to rest. You can kind of mourn and go through the grief process. 
with missing, family members always say that there's no closure. It doesn't matter if they went missing two days ago or three years ago or ten years ago. That moment is the same. They, they can't, there's no moving on from it. You can adapt your life to live in the present to some extent, but there's always going to be that pull back to that moment. And many family members, for example, will say, well, we're not going to move house because if that child will want to come back, how will they know where to find us? Also, financially, in many cases, there's issues there, particularly if they're adults, for family members to all of a sudden have to deal with property or loans or things like that, and that's very traumatic in itself. Um, but emotionally, I think it's one of the worst things, if not the worst emotion or state that you can be in. We talked about it a little bit earlier, but do you think that's why police become so attached to these cases? Absolutely. It touches everyone that comes to know someone who lost a loved one in that circumstances that's gone missing. And when you talk to family members, you feel the anguish, you just feel it. You know, I talked to a mother whose daughter went missing about 30 years ago. And it's just as raw now as it was then. And you just think, how do you manage to live your life with that much distress throughout that time? It really breaks your heart, you know, when you see that and you do get attached to them. It is really difficult and, I mean, the charity Missing People have sort of termed it as living in limbo um, because that's what families have to do. Sherry Makara is from the Missing Persons Bureau. We've sort of been in touch and know of families that, for example, they won't change the bedroom in case that person comes back. They don't feel they can move house because that address is the address that the missing person knows them to be at. And what if one day they did come back and um, they'd go to that address and they wouldn't be there? They don't want to go on holiday. And I think there's just this constant feeling of guilt if you're not out searching for that person, that you're not doing enough. It's a really, really hard experience for families. OK, so let's move on a little bit to the database, the national database that you were talking about right at the start. Um, I believe you've got, uh, you said you've got a thousand, uh, maybe I read it last night, you've got a thousand um, unidentified individuals on the database, is that correct? It's about one and a half thousand. One and a half yeah. thousand, OK. Yeah. So on the unidentified body side of things, we have a code of practice in place with forces um, that requires them to notify us of any unidentified bodies, body parts, persons found within 48 hours. Um, so if they're still unidentified after 48 hours, they'll send the details through to us. So that's when we become involved. We will then enter the details onto our database. We can do a search of our outstanding missing persons at that time to see if we've got any missing individuals that might be relevant to that case. And again, the tactical advice and support that we can provide in those cases will depend on what circumstances there are. It will be very heavily focused around forensics things like DNA, fingerprints if you can get them and, and similarly dental records because with these cases forensic is often the only way that you're ever going to be able to confirm a match. But that's why it's really important for us to collect as much information as possible, things like distinctive features, tattoos, piercings, scars, so that we can use that information to help us try and match these individuals up because there's a family out there missing this person somewhere and until we're able to make that match they're not going to have answers as to what's happened to their loved one so it's really important work. And I saw as well that you do also do recreations of how someone might have looked. We link directly at the Bureau with a couple of um, forensic artists so that 
if that's relevant, we'll ask them to do the work. And it's amazing what they can do. They can do sort of forensic reconstructions just based on a skull. And you would think with just a skull, it'd be very difficult um, to really build up an idea of what that individual looked like. But yeah, they can do some really excellent work. And even in cases where perhaps the body's sort of decomposed, where it's quite difficult to pick out facial features, they can put together a very realistic picture of what that individual looked like and in cases where we have then been able to um, make a match and identify we've had some excellent results comparing the picture of what the individual really did look like against the reconstruction or the impression and there's sort of some amazing similarities I think the statistics say there's going to be around a 60% likeness but we've had cases where we'd say it was closer to around sort of 90 to 95%. How many was it you said you were sort of closing and identifying per year? It's around 50% per month that we work to as a as a resolution rate, which is, which is a really good result, but at the same time it still leaves 50% that do remain unidentified. I mean, that's the reason behind our website. And actually, since the website was launched in November 2012, we've had around eight successful resolutions, which might not immediately sound like a huge number, but these are individuals who had actually been unidentified for around 20 years. It's hard to underline the emotional impact a missing loved one will have on the families left behind. You can understand the need to keep looking, keep searching, keep doing whatever it takes to get to the truth. For the families, the case never gets cold. And for some, the pursuit of answers can take an unconventional path. I'm Camilla Venton Fraser. I've worked as a clairvoyant for 45 years. I'm in the southwest of London. I have a very interesting life, very complicated life, very wonderful life in clairvoyance. So what does that entail? You you come in onto this into this life and you have a destiny. And some people's lives are very long and other people's lives are very short. And other people's lives are in the public domain and others are not because everyone has their private views and private thoughts. Um, known only to the spirit world. It's between me and the gatepost type of thing. They'll think, we want to disappear from this family. We don't like this family, we want to disappear. But we don't ever want to come back. And the spirit world might say, well, that's fine. You'll disappear, you'll go missing, and we'll allow it that you're never found. And they're never found. It's strange, it's very strange. When people come to me, they are told to come to me. They are chosen to come to me by their spirit guides. So their spirit guides will get into their heads, ring Camilla. Now, if they've come before and they're coming for a second visit or third or fourth or fifth, I will pick up, oh, so-and-so is just about to ring me and I can hear that call coming down the line and then the phone will go. And the person will say, oh, maybe it's Sally here. Oh, yes, of course, I'd say. I knew you were going to ring. I was picking you up 24 hours ago. I knew you'd ring today. And that's how it works. That's when people come to me often. Let's just pause for a moment. You might be feeling a little cynical at this point. I think that would probably be the common reaction. But when directly affected by the loss of a loved one, Who's to say you wouldn't follow every possible avenue in order to uncover the tiniest piece of information? So how do you become involved in the search for missing people? For many, many years, people phoned me up and they'd come in with photographs of their missing cats 
their dogs, their horses, or they'd send the photograph by post and say, it's been missing for three months, it's been missing for two weeks, it's been missing for um, a month. Um, so that's the animals. Then there would be people coming in, and they, the people who came in regarding missing people, you know, one of their family was missing, they would themselves come in by person. So they'd be sitting over the consultancy room table opposite me, and they'd have photographs, and they'd say, you know, our son or our daughter's been missing for two weeks or for three months. We heard about you, we saw that you do this, can you help? So the people who are missing, it would be a case that their relatives would come in person to see me. So there would never be a circumstance where you, you go the other way because you've already talked about how people are led mm. to your door. Yes, so yeah. it always has to be someone being led to your door yes. rather than the other way yeah. around. They have to invite me to try and find the missing person. It's very much like a missing animal. You have the picture and they say, well, are they alive or are they dead? You know, what, what is it? And you go through a bit of a filtering system where you pick up their vibration. If there's a vibration, they're still alive. If that vibration goes to light, they are alive. If there's a bit of a vibration but it's going to go to dark, they're going to pass. Then you listen for the, the missing person's breath in the universe. And there's a filtering system again where you've got to be absolutely dead on the money here. Figuratively speaking, you've got to have that responsibility where when you say the missing person is alive, they are alive. You, you talk a little bit more about the vibration. What is what do you, do you mean like a literal vibration? That's yeah, what you everything feel. holds a vibration. You know, the cup of coffee, the glass of water, the table here. Everything holds a vibration, um, and the vibration makes it solid. So, like atoms, everything holds a vibration. So, a person, obviously, flesh and blood, holds a vibration. Now, of the people who've been missing. They've actually come back on that date at that time. You have to work with time. You work with the vibration. You work with the energy. And then you do the remote viewing where you say, I'm picking this up. So you give them information that they can take. You must go to the police because the police will take this up and they will find her at a particular time. And the police then get involved because the relative then goes to the police. And I don't know what the police say to them. I don't think they laugh at them. I do think they're very serious, and they do investigate, and they find the girl or they find the boy. The relative will actually see visually the missing person come back at the time that I've said. And what do you think the reaction is from the police in that circumstance? I go to America a lot, and I think the psychics there clairvoyance there, mediums, they work closely with the police. And I think America embraces clairvoyance more than Britain does. But I've never had any negative response from the police. You mean law enforcement in the US is mm. more receptive? Why yes. do you think that is? I don't know. I just... I mean, I love the Americans because they believe in angels. They've got a childlike 
mentality, but it's the right type of childlike mentality. They've got the visions, they've got the imagination. They haven't got the naughtiness, but they've got the imagination of a child. Did you ever feel like they, they, they come to you as a sort of last resort, and does that bother you? No, they, they literally come when they're supposed to. I could say my house is called the last resort uh, saloon. Um, but they normally come about two weeks after the person's gone missing because it's at the stage. Or they come when they have a gut feeling that something is wrong. They haven't just gone to their girlfriends for a sleepover for a week or sleepover for a weekend. The parents have a gut feeling and then it may be that they take a while to um, rummage around to find the expert that can help them. Do you always feel like it's just your duty, it's your, your kind of destiny to deliver that information to them? Um, when you give this information, that's why you've got to filter down through all your spirit guides that the information you're giving is, is correct. Now, I could say to somebody who came and said, look, my son is missing or my father's missing, and I could say, look, there's no chance. They could still leave my consultancy room hoping, oh, well, the clairvoyance probably got it wrong. I'll hope that there is a chance. Whatever you say to them, in the depths of their soul, they're going to feel, no, I'm not getting the right information. There is still hope. So you could say glibly, well, you mustn't hope, but they will still hope. Do you think it's possible for someone to completely disappear? beyond anyone's ability to find them, I mean. Um, yes. Yeah, it's, it's rarity, but there are various levels of life. There's a parallel universe, and you can just slip between. And so you could be there one minute and gone the next, like those spirit guides that I was talking about, where they come as human, looking like humans, and then they disappear before my very eyes. So it's got to be true. You know, people can just literally disappear. Be honest, you probably didn't predict where this week's episode would end up. But the fact is, psychics really are used by families to try and locate loved ones. Whether you believe in what they do or not, it underlines the terrible emotional toll a missing loved one takes on the families left behind. Of all the many hours of research I've done for my books, in all the interviews I've transcribed and people I've been lucky enough to speak to, I think what always sticks with me the most and what comes up most frequently is the psychological aspects of a missing person search. What is going through the mind of the person who has disappeared? How do they stay missing? What do they have to give up? What must it be like for the people who love them? They are all questions we've attempted to answer over the course of this podcast series. We've tried to cover as much of the search as we can from the very first second a person disappears. But with one episode to go, I'm still undecided about whether I'd fancy my chances of disappearing. There's been such compelling evidence on both sides of the argument, and next week, in our final show of the season, we're going to try to reach a definitive answer. Next week on Missing. You know, one of the keys to disappearing is most people think you just pick up and go, okay? And that's like the worst thing you can do. 
a lot of information about your identity leaks out through devices that are associated with you. Our cell phones track where we go, but they also correlate that information with our account data. I'm going to roll my sleeves up, get our experts around the table and decide once and for all whether disappearing for good really is possible.